0: You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now, and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction
1: book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place.
0: Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biskubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble.
1: Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In 1981, Jean Harris, the headmistress at the prestigious Madeira School outside of Washington, D.C., was tried and convicted of murdering her ex-lover, Dr. Herman Turnauer. Hi, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And while that intro might sound like something you'd hear on a true crime podcast, this is Lectures in History. This week, University of Colorado professor Sarah Fields teaches a class on Ms. Harris's trial. She examines her background, her long relationship with the doctor known for the, quote, Scarsdale diet, end quote, and her conviction. Stay tuned. Class starts after this short break.
2: All right, good afternoon. We are going to talk about Jean Harris, and for those of us who are old enough to remember the Scarsdale Diet Doctor murder, Uh, we're going to talk about this case in a couple of different sections. First, we're going to talk about the case itself and some of the impact of the choices that the lawyers made during the trial that affected the outcome uh, but as we talk about this case I want you to keep two things in the back of your mind because we're gonna come back at the end of class to talk about these the first is I want you to think about how this case is both similar and different from the Lizzie Borden murder trial from 1893 so about hundred years earlier and the second is the question of why do you all know who Lizzie Borden is and raise your hand if you had ever heard of this t- murder the Jean Harris murder trial before this class Okay, one, two, kind of. And before we did Lizzie Borden, you'd all heard of Lizzie Borden, right? And so I want to talk about why some cases remain more famous than others, especially because everybody kind of talks about cases as if they are the case of the century, the trial of the century. All right, so we're going to begin with opening statements. And the reason we're doing this is that most of America really got to know our uh, alleged perpetrator, Gene Harris, and our victim, Herman Tarnauer in the opening statements. So today, Luke Nicholas will represent the prosecution for the state of New York, and Jalicia Fobbs will represent the det- defense team for Gene Harris. So as is traditional, Luke representing the prosecution will go first, and Jalicia will come up immediately after him. So, ready Luke? Yes, yes. All right, come on up. I will step away. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well,
3: I would like to begin just by uh, thanking my esteemed colleague, Julicia, for defending uh, Miss Jean Harris. So, on to a little heavier note now. My role as a prosecutor of the state is not to defend the moral character of Dr. Tarnauer, it is not to reject evidence to uphold a faulty case, it is not to paint a false picture. My duty to the people of the state of New York is to uphold the very foundation of our society justice. I must do this in a fair and equitable way. I must provide evidence, expert witness, and the testimony of dear friends and family. I must make known the truth of what happened on the night of March 10th, 1980. This is a solemn undertaking and I take no joy in the facts of this case. Wish it were that we were not here, finding ourselves in such a terrible situation. But as many, many years of human history have shown us, jealousy, hatred, and revenge all too often distort and disfigure the goodness of mankind. It seems as though the British poet William Congreve, in 1697, wrote the prophetic archetype of Miss Harris in his now famous maxim, heaven has no rage like love turned hatred, nor hell fury like a woman scorned. Scorned, a powerful word meaning belittled or demeaned to the point of fury. I have seen, to my deep dissatisfaction, that Miss Harris was a woman scorned, consumed with jealousy, with hatred, that led her to murder her lover of 14 years. As you will see by the testimony of her sons and her colleagues, Miss Harris was a tightly wound woman, a commanding woman, a woman easily offended by irreverent actions. She was the headmistress of the prestigious Madeira All-Girls School in McLean, Virginia. The stress of such an occupation was augmented by the constant challenge to her authority as headmistress, by the family lawyers contesting expulsions and reprimands handed down from her office to disobedient students. She was embattled in her position, as many in such positions are. She is a woman who believes that if all miscreants would follow her way, they would be reformed and find joy in a near stoic discipline. As I'm sure all of us have seen before, she fell in love with a man who could be perceived as her exact opposite. Maybe she saw an opportunity to reform him, a conquest to prove her own pedagogical power. A mighty triumph it would have been to take Doctor Tarnower away from his whores, as she would call them, and reform him. Make him see the light of a good, strong woman like herself. I dare say she dreamt, but this was not to be. He was set in his ways. He was set in his ways as abhorrent as they may be to us. As the two grew close, as oftentimes couples like this do, like two worlds colliding, opposites attracting different values, friends, attitudes, and agendas, they remained together for 14 years. The affairs I do mean the sexual endeavors of the doctor outside his relations with Jean Harris were known to Miss Harris. She never thought any of these floozies a threat until young, smart, beautiful Lynn Triforce came into the picture. Ms. Harris would tell police, after fleeing the scene of the murder, not only that she did in fact shoot the doctor, but that he slept with every woman he could and I'd had it. Jean Harris was of a sober mind as she got in her car in the late hours on the evening of March 10th, 1980. She had with her a .32 caliber pistol, her coat, and the scornful intention to kill her lover. Jealousy had become fury after Lynn Triforce, the rival in this love triangle, had cut up over a thousand dollars worth of her clothing and encouraged the doctor to stay away from Jean. Miss Harris had a plan. She drove from Virginia to New York that night, walked into the dark garage of Dr. Tarnauer 's house and up the spiral staircase that led to his bedroom. She drew the gun. She yelled at him after seeing the negligee of Lynn Triforos Tri- scattered across the bedroom. She then squeezed her trembling finger on the cold steel trigger of that .32 caliber handgun five times, killing the man who had scorned her, possibly wishing that Lynn Tryforus had not left early that night or else she, too, likely would have been murdered. Jean Harris then picked up her coat and gun, and silently exited the house the way that she had come in. She got into her car and began driving back to Virginia. After evading the police by making a drastic U-turn, she was pulled over. She admitted to the crime. Now, here today, she sits in the courtroom. She is not pleading insanity or any instability of mind. She has confessed to officers to the murder of Dr. Tarno- Tarnauer in a spiteed and jealous rage. This love trial, this love triangle ended abruptly at the discharge of that 0.32 caliber pistol. One shot pierced through the palm of Dr. Tarnauer's hand and into his chest as he raised his hand to shield himself we are left beyond a reasonable doubt and the evidence will show that Gene Harris consciously, volitionally, voluntarily, and intentionally fired five shots, the five shots that murdered Dr. Tarnauer on the night of March 10th 1980. I leave in the hands of the jury truth May you, by the grace of God, bring justice to the family and friends of Dr. Tarnauer. Thank you.
1: Your Honor, opposing counsel, members of the jury, It's easy to paint a woman of high stature and independence, such as Miss Harris, as arrogant and with an uncontrollable temper. It's easy to accuse such a woman as driven with jealousy and rage when she discovered her lover of 14 years, who asked for her hand in marriage, only to take it away because he had found, because he had had a wandering eye. Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution is looking for the easy way out. But unlike the prosecution, you know that just because something is easy doesn't mean it's correct. The tale of the old woman riddled with rage and seeking revenge on a lover who ran away from someone else, from someone younger and more beautiful, is not only cliche, but is simply not the case when it comes to Miss Harris. At the height of her life, Miss Harris felt she was at her lowest, as her reputation as a formidable and disciplined headmistress of a prestigious academy was under fire, and her integrity was broken to the point where she couldn't walk away from Mr. Towner, despite knowing of his affair, not because she was upset but because she loved him so much, she couldn't accept what he had done to her. The prosecution has brought forth evidence that they believe provide the motive and means for Miss Harris to commit such a horrific crime. But ladies and gentlemen, the only motive Miss Harris had was the motive to end her life. The prosecution will try to tell you that on the night of March tenth, 1980, Miss Harris, in a fit of rage and jealousy, drove to the home of Mr. Tonowar to shoot him four times in the chest with a .32 caliber pistol. But they will fail to tell you that minutes before driving to Mr. Tanner's home, Miss Harris left behind a suicide note and drove to see Mr. Tanner as a final goodbye before she decided to end her life. They will fail to tell you about the bruises found on Miss Harris's arms and shoulders, indicative of a struggle Miss Harris recalls over the gun when Mr. Towner would try to pull her arms away when she pointed it to her head. The same struggle evident in Mr. Tanner's hands as the bullets went through his palm in his effort to cover the mouth of the gun and into his chest. They will show you a letter written by Ms. Harris to Mr. Townerwer and will say shows undeniable proof of Miss Harris's intent to kill her lover. But they will fail to tell you that this letter is only representative of Ms. Harris's state of mind at the time she found out Mr. Townerwer's affair. That this letter was not representative of their 14-year-long marriage. They will, also fail you to, they will also fail to tell you that um, the letters written by Ms. they will also fail to tell you about the letters written by Mr. Tanner, letters described as prescriptions of a number of sedatives, painkillers, sleeping pills, and amphetamines that Miss Harris used as a way to deal with her depression. Finally, they will tell you how officers overheard Miss Harris admit that she did commit this crime. The same officers who physically mishandled the evidence because they were unequipped and lacked the knowledge to follow the proper procedures of a crime scene. Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution has the burden of proof to prove to you that Ms. Harris had, one, the motive and the means, two, with the intent and knowingly, and three, beyond a reasonable doubt that Ms. Harris committed this crime. But at the conclusion of the trial, the prosecution will fail. Members of the jury, Jean Harris loved Mr. Towner, despite everything. Ms. Harris did not want to kill the man who she remembers wooing her with roses and dances, the man who she was with for 14 years. The night of March 10th was not driven by malice or hate, but rather was an unfortunate result of a woman struggling with her mental health, and I implore you to return with a verdict of not guilty. Thank you.
2: Well done, both of you. You almost don't need me for the rest of class. That was very well done. All right, um, but since we're all here and I get paid to do this, I'm going to keep talking at you. Okay. So this is a case where geography matters. You know how much I like maps. So we're gonna see some of them. The geography matters here because it reveals quite a bit about social status and because issues of distance are relevant. And later, don't worry, there'll be more maps. Um, But for those of you who aren't sure where places like Detroit and Cleveland are, here's the big picture. So Denver, over here. Detroit, right here. Cleveland is right here. This is Lake Erie. Uh, Washington, D.C. is down here. Philadelphia is about here, and New York City is here. Herman Tarnauer lived just outside of New York City, just to the north, near the Connecticut border. So, let's talk about the backstory. Jalisa and Luke did a great job of telling you some of it. Here's a little bit more. We'll start with Jean Harris's story before she met Herman Tarnauer. She was born in 1923 to a wealthy family. She grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland in a particularly wealthy suburb known as Shaker Heights. Um, I got most of this information from a combination of sources. I read a whole bunch of articles from the time of the trial. And then I also read a biography by, about Jean Harris by a woman named Shauna Alexander. Now, to be completely candid, Ms. Alexander's biography is not unbiased. The opening sentence, uh, basically, Alexander says that Jean Harris could have been her. So not unbiased at all. But in that biography, which was based on just tons of letters and uh, interviews with Harris while she was in prison, Alexander argues that Harris's problems with her mental health and her problems with men (laughs) begin as a child. That it's the 1920s. Her father is a very successful businessman. Uh, In addition to living in Shaker Heights, they uh, vacation. So we got Shaker Heights over here by Cleveland. Here's Detroit. This line is the Canadian border, and the family vacationed on the Canadian side of Lake Erie, and they had a summer home. And that enclave was such that the wives and the kids stayed there all summer, and the husbands would work during the week and come out for the weekends. And uh, allegedly, Ms. Harris's father was a kind of cold and distant guy. Uh, Jean Harris was smart. She did well in high school. She went off to Smith College, she graduated Phi Beta Kappa, she did everything a wealthy young woman of that era was supposed to do. Once she got her degree, she got married. She got married to a guy named James Harris, who was a boy she'd known from those summers on the Canadian coast. James Harris also seemed to fit the bill of who she should marry. He was a nice guy. Uh, but he wasn't terribly ambitious. He came from a good family, but when he graduated from college, he got a job with a company that made carburetors. And he wasn't moving up in the, the company as quickly as anybody would like, and the family wasn't making as much money, um, the Harris family, as either of the two had grown up with. And so Gene Harris's life starts to deviate from what might have been expected of a woman in the 1940s and 1950s at this point. Uh, James and she had moved to Gross Point, Michigan, which is outside of Detroit. So again, this is all still in this general area. It's another wealthy suburb. They had two sons. And Jean wanted to send the boys to private school, and they just didn't basically have enough money. So she did something different. She got her master's in education, and she began teaching at a private girls' school. This gave the family more income. And it changed the dynamics between James and Jean quite a bit. Later, Jean would say she married James mostly to irritate her father, um, that he wasn't what her father would have wanted. And in the end, the Harrises got divorced in about 1964, and Jean took a new job in Philadelphia. Um, which is now to the east. And she was the headmistress of a girls' middle school. And one of the advantages of that is the sons who had moved with her could go to the brother school of this, the, where she was headmistress, and so they had access to uh, what she saw as a better education. Now, Herman Tarnauer comes from a very different background. His parents were immigrants. They owned a store in New York City. He was born in 1910. And he kind of lived the American dream. He went to college, he went to medical school. During World War II, he enlisted and served in the U.S. Army Medical Corps. After World War II, he moved up uh, just outside of New York. So here's Manhattan down here. He moved to an area up here, which is called Purchase, New York. And he started a medical clinic, and he specialized in cardiology. And the medical clinic became quite successful. Multiple different members joined. He was one of the lead doctors most of the time. He was, by all accounts, very successful, not just as a doctor, but also socially. He started social climbing because he's making more money. He's hanging out with wealthy people. He really enjoyed travel, and he traveled both on his own and he traveled as the guests of some of his patients who rather enjoyed the idea of saying they were traveling with their private doctor. He liked hunting. He went on safaris. Uh, He enjoyed golf and Tennis at the co- at the country clubs that would admit him. He was Jewish, so not all of the local country clubs would admit him. But those that did, he participated in. He was a bit of a ladies' man. He never married, but he had lots and lots of different girlfriends. Uh, and he seemed well on his way to you know being a perfectly happy, wealthy player until he meets Gene, Gene Harris in 1966. So, Jean Harris and Herman, meet, it's a setup. They have these mutual friends who live in New York City. And as luck would have it, both Gene and Hai, well, that was his nickname, had gone off to visit the Soviet Union separately, relatively recently. And the friends thought the two of them would get along because they enjoyed travel and they were urbane and they were witty and all of those things. And so they had a party, set the two of them up, and it worked. Tarnauer and Harris began dating. Uh, and after a year, 18 months or so, they got engaged. And here's where the stories diverge a little bit. Some reports are that uh, Tarnauer was never serious about the engagement. Other reports are that he was completely serious about the engagement, but Gene Harris, who still had those two sons who hadn't yet turned 18, was worried about remarrying while, while they were underage and that she felt she didn't want to introduce that uh, an element of a stepfather into their life, even though she'd been dating Tarnauer and the boys knew him and they spent weekends with him and they all traveled together. Uh, And so Jean Harris, in her autobiography, insisted that she was pretty much ready to call the engagement off when Herman Tarnower called it off. Regardless of who called it off, the engagement ends. Jean returns the very expensive engagement ring. He says, no, 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 keep it. She says, no, 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 I can't keep it. Keep it. Don't keep it. Don't keep it. Goes back and forth. Eventually, she keeps the wedding ring. This is important, because all along, Jean has issues with money, and she doesn't want to take, she doesn't want to be seen as taking High's money because is pretty wealthy and she's less so. So the engagement is off, but the relationship is not. And this is again where perspectives change. Everything about this story depends on whose perspective you're listening to and whose perspective you believe and how credible these witnesses are. And it's made more complicated because Tarnauer died before he could write his memoirs uh, and Gene did not. Jean admits that Tarnauer uh, was a bit of a ladies' man. She does not think he was necessarily dating folks while they were engaged. But after the engagement end, he began his playing ways. And he started dating other women again. And she'd written him a letter of which she kept a copy in which she basically says, I can live with this because I know that I'm special. And so he takes it as fair game to to do what he wants to do. And they continue their relationship. They continue to travel together. Uh, She... Uh, hosts parties for him. Uh, she offers him decorating advice on their house. In lots of ways, she acts like a, a long-term relationship, a long-term girlfriend, kind of like a wife, except she doesn't live with him permanently. In 1972, she moves even closer to where Tarn lives. Um, he's on the border of Connecticut and New York, and she gets a job at teaching, I'm sorry, as a headmistress of another girls' school in Connecticut, buys a house that's about 45 minutes from Tarn Hour's, which is perfect. She can pop over for parties, she helps host the parties, maybe she spends the night, maybe she goes back home, but she's super close. Well, a couple years after that, at that job at the headmistress in Connecticut, she decides she wants a change, and she ends up working for a corporation in Manhattan. No problem. East Coast states are super small. She drives down to Manhattan every day. She still gets to see high. She's perfectly happy. Now, in the background of all this, and both Luke and Jalicia made mention of this, in about 1970, while they're early in their 14-year relationship, Jean Harris complains to Dr. Tarnower that she's having problems with exhaustion, and she's just so tired. And is there anything that he can do to help? And so he does. He prescribes drugs. He starts with a prescription methamphetamine, and then, not surprisingly, after time on a methamphetamine, she can't sleep, so he adds the sleeping pills. Multiple reports think speculate, and Jean Harris has later said, that she was probably depressed, and that the drugs were covering for the depression, and they weren't helping anything. But it's important to remember that she spends basically 10 years on methamphetamines, because this is gonna come back to us. All right. In about 1977, things are going to change, because Harris moves again. She gets a different job, and this time it's in Washington, D.C., and she's headmistress of uh, an elite girls' boarding school, which is named Madeira. Now, this changes the Harris-Tarnauer dynamic she's further away physically. She's much further away physically. It's no longer 45 minutes I can pop over an easy drive in Connecticut rural roads. Now she's 275 miles. And in 1980, it's about a five hour drive. But you have to go through Philadelphia, New York City, Washington DC, all to get to them. So you can imagine what it's like with traffic. So Tarnower's got, from his perspective, a lot more freedom. Jane's not there. So he'd had this relationship ongoing with Lynn Triforos for a while. But they spend a lot more time together now because Jean's not there. So Lynn spends more time at the house. And Lynn Typhorus works at Tarnauer's medical clinic. Uh, She's some sort of medical assistant. And so she gets to see High every day. And she's seeing him every night. And she's attending parties with him. And Jean's in Washington, outside of Washington, D.C. And it's beginning to get into her head. And then something else also happens that changes the dynamic hour um, publishes this diet book and I can't, this was a huge diet book it was like one of the first diet books to be crazy big. It was so big that last year my mom was going through a um, my, my family has a book collecting problem. We have way too many of them. And every once in a while, somebody goes through and says, okay, I'm going to get rid of all of my books, which means they take all their books that they don't want anymore, they put them in a giant box, and then whoever goes to visit them next goes through the giant box and takes out all the books they want. And my mom had a copy of the Scarsdale Diet book in her in her box. I left it. I should have taken it, but... I didn't think it was important. Uh, turns out it was, I could have like showed you the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you can buy it on uh, eBay and Abe.com and Amazon for super cheap if you want your own copy. It was, but just to save you time, it's a low carb, low calorie diet. It prides itself on the cover. It says you can lose up to 20 pounds in 14 days. That's the low, low uh, calorie part of it. Uh, the book itself, which is like this thick, was based on Tarnauer's two-page handout that he used to give his cardiac patients, which basically said, eat less red meat, don't eat as many carbs, avoid sugar, don't drink alcohol. And then he expanded it to get into this book. And the book is a huge hit, makes a ton of money. It's published in late 1978, finishes 1979 number two on the nonfiction bestseller list. uh, And there's an estimated gross income of about $11 million for the book by spring of 1980. Now, to put this in perspective, he was probably getting between 10 and 20 percent of the proceeds. So that's one point one to two point two million dollars that he's making off of this book. Not only is that, he's now gone from being like the local doctor that everybody likes, who's like locally famous to Dr. Oz famous. He's on television shows. People know who he is. He's in demand. They want him at parties. They give him awards and Jean, who's already feeling a little out of it because she's down in Washington, D.C., is alienated even further. Because if you ask Jean Harris in in 1981 who wrote this book, she's going to say she was a co-author. Now, they ask the guy who is a co-author, a guy named Sam Sinclair Baker, uh, and he says no. All Jean Harris did was some minor editing. She offered some suggestions. She gets mentioned in the acknowledgements. But Jean really thinks that she contributed more than this. So it adds to the tension in the relationship. And it adds enough tension that she's now thinking about things like money because he's making a lot of it. He's getting these awards, he's getting these accolades, he's going to this stuff with Lynn on his arm because she's down in Washington, D.C. She can't get away from the job. And she wants to go to the awards and she wants acknowledgement. And he does something that, that irritates her even more he writes her a check. And remember the little battle over the diamond engagement ring? You keep it. No, you keep it. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. Blah, blah, blah. Well, they do that with the check, too. I don't want your money. Here's the money. I don't want the money. Here's your money. Take the money. Have to have it for tax purposes. Do the money. And in the book with Alexander, Harris reports that she felt like he was trying to buy her. And he was trying to buy her for four grand. So she is both offended that he's trying to buy her And she's offended that he's trying to buy her for four grand. She thinks she's worth more. So she's irritated that this check is not large enough, and she's irritated that there's a check at all. Remember, this is a woman who's been on methamphetamines for 10 years, which doesn't help anything at all. And she sees this as a time when their relationship is changing. She's feeling more distance, and she's still worried about Lynn Triforos. And how how uh, high Dr. Tarnauer feels is complicated because again he doesn 't get the chance to write his book and to tell his story. But it seems like he is pulling away a little bit. There are lots of accounts of of Gene Harris driving up from Washington, D.C. to see her. There's not a whole lot of accounts of him going down to see her. On the other hand, he was also a very generous man. So Gene Harris has these two sons. Parents get divorced when they're like 15 and 13, something like that, early teens. And Tarnauer's in their life, and he's so present in their life that when the older son gets married, Tarnower pays for big chunks of the wedding and pays for the rehearsal dinner and gives the toast at the rehearsal dinner and goes to it and Says all these things because at this point actually uh, James Harris has died So he's not present so Tarnower is acting like these this young man's father Uh, So he has given a great deal to the family so he clearly cares about Jean and her kids a great deal but Jean's isolated She's down at Madeira and Madeira is, as you can see from this photo, this is an overview, this is not from 1980, this is more recent. It's outside of Washington, D.C., in um, McLean, Virginia, which is only about 12 miles from D.C. But Madeira is 350 acres, and a lot of it is wooded. So by all accounts, it feels fairly isolated. I've never been on the campus, but I have driven past, and it's like driving past this giant college campus. It's big. and it's despite being in the middle of an urban area it feels isolated and it probably felt even more isolated for Jean harris because she's grown up she's in her 50s and she's living on this campus with a bunch of high school girls and there were only two or three other resident faculty members and she's the boss so it's not like she can go hang out with the other resident faculty members and have the same relationship because she evaluates them she pays them all of those things so she's physically isolated. She's socially isolated. She's emotionally isolated from High. She writes tons of letters, none of which is a good idea. Um, and the concerns about his relationship seem to be eating at her. They show up more and more in her letters to him uh, and in her comments to her lawyers during the trial. Uh, she accuses Lynn of all sorts of things. She accuses Lynn of slashing up. They would each stay at High's house and leave stuff. So it was kind of like they were marking their territory with this guy. Like, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to leave a scarf or I'm going to stay here and I'm going to leave this makeup in the bathroom and I'm going to leave my toothbrush. And then they would... Jean Harris never admitted to messing with Lynn's stuff until the last night, but she claims that Lynn messed with her stuff all the time. She said that Lynn slashed her clothing. And in one of the more uh, disgusting things, she claims that Lynn took human feces and rubbed it into some of her uh, a new dress that, that Jean had left there. Uh, Jean claimed that Lynn stalked her uh, by, the telefo- by phone and would make threats and... At the same time, there were some reports that Jean would call the clinic where both Lynn and Hai worked and basically talk, talk trash to Lynn. Uh, we don't know Lynn Triforis' story because she did not testify at the trial and she didn't give interviews. She remained very private and stayed out of the public eye to this day. In fact, I couldn't even tell you where she is or what she's doing at this stage. So you got all this going on with Jean Harris and then we got her job. The job, man, it's not going terribly well. Um, it's 1980, the world is changing. Let's think about what we know about what the expectation for girls are prior to, the 19, prior to 1980. Jean Harris is what we expect of, of young ladies of wealth and privilege. They're supposed to do well in school, they're supposed to go to a lovely girls' school, they're supposed to get their degree, and then they're supposed to get married, and they're supposed to have children. And that was the expectation of Madeira girls. But things have changed. All right, who remembers what happened in 1972, what law changed education as we know it forever? Yes? Title IX. Title nine comes along. What does Title IX do? Uh, just involves equal representation for males and females in educational aspects. That's right. You can no longer discriminate against girls and women in educational settings. So what does that mean? It means that Jean Harris had to go to Smith College because it was a women's school and it was one of the best schools open to her. Her students can go to Yale. They can go to Stanford. They can go to Princeton. They could go to the University of Virginia. They can go to all of these places that weren't open to Jean Harris. The expectations are, are changing as well. The expectation is no longer in 1980 that you simply go to college and get married and have kids and relive the 1950s. You're supposed to have a career. But socially, things are changing as well. The 1980s are... You know, we've had recreational drugs probably as long as we've had human beings. I'm feeling like as soon as somebody figured out, oh, I can smoke this or eat this and it'll make me feel different, they were probably doing it. But in the early 80s, drugs were pretty rampant on the East Coast in privileged schools. And Madeira was no exception. There were problems particularly with marijuana. And remember, it's 1980, it's Northern Virginia, marijuana is not legal in any way, shape, or form, and it is particularly not legal for kids under the age of 18. And Madeira is facing these financial challenges, because girls' schools aren't as popular, boarding schools are expensive, and so Jean Harris is under pressure from her board of trustees, because they want her to be raising more money. She's trying to balance keeping these girls safe from drugs. Remember, she's on prescription methamphetamines, and I should add that those prescriptions weren't all in her name. Why weren't the prescriptions in her name? Does anybody know what the deal is with prescriptions and doctors and families? Are doctors allowed to prescribe for families? no they are not supposed to prescribe family now she's not actually married to him but they knew that this close relationship might not bear scrutiny so some of those prescriptions were in other people's names and Gene Harris would simply stop and pick up the prescription for that other person yeah, it's the late 70s things are a little more flexible so she's got girls using pot and drugs she's got the stress of the finances the board of trustees is after her and then she has a bad weekend followed by the worst Monday ever Over the weekend, it becomes clear that in one particular dorm, there's a lot of pot. And this is a particular problem because, like, the structure of this is one of those things where you're going to say, like, really, what did you expect? There were no adults living in this dorm. The head of house was a 12th grader. So it turned out that the 12th grader was getting the pot. And was not selling it, appears to have just been distributing it, sharing it with her friends in the dorm, all the way down to like 8th and ninth graders. And half of the Judiciary Council, the Student Judiciary Council, lived in this house and was also smoking pot. Jean Harris finds this out and flips out. She is not amused by any of this. And she kind of shouldn't be, because she is the headmistress. This is kind of her job. They are breaking the law. Everything's happening. But some of these kids are seniors. It's March. They're waiting for college acceptances. So after this long set of hearings and it somehow appears that half of campus is involved in it and all of the faculty gets called in and multiple girls get expelled. All right, if you are a wealthy parent and it's March and your princess is going to go to Princeton, although Princeton hasn't accepted her yet, how are you going to feel when your princess has just been expelled her smoking pot? You're not going to be happy, are you? So if you're not a happy parent, what are you going to do? You're going to sue. You're going to make phone calls. You're going to be angry. You're going to be loud. And that's precisely what happened over the weekend. There were lots of angry phone calls. There were lots of threatening. And all of Monday was people yelling at Jean Harris. And there's one other problem. On Thursday or Friday before that weekend, Jean Harris ran out of her own drugs. So she's coming off of the methamphetamines. Ten years, and she's taking a weekend off. Not the weekend you want to stop uh, taking methamphetamines. Not that you want to start taking methamphetamines. I want to be clear about that. Um, And it's ugly. And that leads us to Monday. It's not a good Monday. Everybody yells at her all day. And she starts by, she's written week, letters all weekend. She was a very literate woman. She Literary, I guess is the better phrase. She liked to write letters. So she writes a bunch of letters on Monday. And she writes a letter to her sister explaining that she's going to kill herself and explaining that she is so worthless as a human being that she should not be buried. She should just be cremated and her ashes dumped um it's actually kind of tragic she tells different people at the school that she's frustrated she's not sure if she can take it one of her teachers feels so badly that they let, she gathers like daisies off the property and leaves it in the front seat of her car to offer Jean harris some support her staff assumes she's gonna quit because things are going badly and and she does quit she just takes a different route to that quitting she packs up her her stuff not a lot of clothes, mostly it's just that 32 caliber pistol that she takes, and she decides to drive from D.C. to New York to kill herself. She's very clear in all of her testimony that she intends to kill herself, and at the trial she says, I wanted to go to High's house and kill myself by the pond where the daffodils bloom in the spring because it's home, and she wanted to go home to die. Now, that's a five-hour drive, which doesn't help if you're, if you're the prosecution and you're talking about murder. But she does. She drives. She schleps up. Now, let's talk about the gun for a second. Where did she get the gun? Um, there's some conflicting information in the, in the different newspaper articles at the time. But it appears that she'd had the handgun for a couple of years. And in fact, Shauna Alexander claims that she first tried to buy a handgun about 10 years earlier even than she'd met High. And that she'd originally bought it because she was contemplating suicide as long as 12, 15 years ago. But that the first place who tried to buy it wouldn't sell it to her because they thought she was suicidal. We have no evidence of this either way. It's just Jean Harris's story. Jean Harris claims she tried several years later to buy another gun. And same thing, they wouldn't sell it to her uh, for whatever reasons uh shauna alexander attributed to the the suspicion that the whoever was selling the guns thought that she might be suicidal but she seems to have bought the handgun which she used to shoot high and that she intended to shoot herself several years before this and so she'd had it for a while so you gotta give her credit for 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 focus She drives those five hours. She gets up to the house, and as Luke and Jalicia described very well, she goes into the house dark. She has, I should say, she called high to say she was coming. It's a five-hour drive. She's not going to surprise him. She calls him, and he says, don't come. I'm having a party. Lynn's going to be here. Don't come. She does anyway. But she runs into traffic again. She stays through work. She doesn't get there until late in the evening. I want to say like 10-ish, 10 p.m., maybe 11 She gets in the house, and she decides that she wants to say goodbye to High. She wants to see him one last time. So she goes up to his bedroom, and that's where she finds Lynn's lingerie, Lynn's stuff in the bathroom. She feels agitated, upset. She might do some yelling. High wakes up, basically says, yeah, I'm tired. I'm going back to sleep. Shut up. That was not the proper answer. She sits down on the edge of his bed, according to her, And she's ready to shoot herself. He grabs the gun. She gets shot through the hand. And that bullet seems to have entered his chest. There's a lot of actually conflicting evidence about the gunshots, whether they're three, four, or five, um, and where the bullets end up in his body. And even during trial, the medical experts disagree on some things. So it's a little fuzzy about this. But the one thing that is clear is she didn't just shoot Ty once. And she didn't shoot herself at all. So she said they struggle over the gun, that he goes in to clean up his hand. She feels terrible and worthless, and she's angry at Lynn, so she starts cleaning up the bedroom. Again, there's nobody here to conflict to, to say that this isn't true. But there are other people in the house. High's a rich guy. High has staff who live there. The staff live in a different section of the house, but they eventually hear the gunshots because Lynn sits down again. She says there's a struggle over the gun. There does, in fact, seem to be evidence that she is bruised. She testifies that he hits her in ways that he had never hit her before. There's no evidence either way that he had hit her prior to this or if he was struggling to pull a gun away. But the gun discharges repeatedly into his chest. Uh, She recognizes that High is not in good shape. She later testifies that she only remembers two shots, one through the hand and then a second one later. There are at least four. There could be five discharges, but there are definitely four holes in High. and There are more holes than that because one is a through and through. She leaves. She says she's going to go get help. Still not entirely sure why she didn't go phone for help or get the live-in help, but she's just driven five hours. She's had a horrible weekend. She's just shot her boyfriend of 14 years repeatedly. Oh, yeah, and she's still coming down off the methamphetamines. So I guess I can understand that she's not making the best decisions. Oh, wait, she hasn't made a single good decision all day. So why start now? So she heads out of the house to get help, in the meantime, to help who lives there has heard the gunshots and called the police police are on their way somewhere in all of this the police arrive and pull in the stories differ there seems to be whether or not they chased her or she says that she turned around and followed the police in regardless she does say that she shot high and she says it to a police officer who goes in and discovers sure enough high has been shot high dies which is why we have a murder trial uh Shauna Alexander has an interesting theory that I have no idea if it's true, but it just makes it even more dramatic if it is, that he wouldn't have died uh, if they got him out of the house sooner, that nobody realized that one of the bullets had stayed lodged in his body. They thought they were all through and through and he wasn't bleeding very much, but the bullet in his body did quite a bit of damage, so he did, in fact, die. And the murder trial begins, and it's exciting, and it's dramatic. When I tell people that I'm talking about this case, if they are my age or older, they remember this case. Nobody younger than this seems to remember, but everybody older than me, no matter where they were in the country, remember it. In fact, when I told the dean I was doing this class today, The first thing she said is, I grew up in Scarsdale. I totally know the area. I read, she started talking about the trial. And then she said, yeah, I wasn't there during the actual trial. It was really disappointing. (laughs) Um, So everybody remembers this case, because the tabloids covered it. The regular press covered it. Uh, You can't see this, but this is the headline from the Pacific Stars and Stripes. The Pacific is on the other side of the country. They're paying attention. New York Times covers it on an almost daily basis. The tabloids have it. New York Magazine has it. And it's got everything. To give you an idea of how much coverage there was, I did a search on LexisNexis from April 1, 1979 to April 1, 1982, and I found 1,000 results for Jean Harris in the news section. They cover all sorts of things, particularly, interestingly, what Jean Harris wore to the trial. Every day, somebody felt it necessary to report on what she wore. Why? Why? Because it's part of the whole tabloid thing of all of this. This case has everything. It was like begging to be a made-for-TV movie. Don't worry, a made-for-TV movie was coming. Uh, It's got sex. It's got unmarried sex, which is even more exciting. Drugs. It's got betrayal. It's got the other woman. It's got money. It's got wealth. It's got privilege. It's got celebrity. The Scarsdale diet doctor is dead Nobody knows his name, but everybody knows the Scarsdale Diet doctor. This is dramatic, so everybody wants to talk about it. The trial itself didn't go the way it probably should have, whether it's from a legal perspective or from really anything. So this is a quote from a woman who's a mystery writer here in the Colorado and uh, there's a website about women who kill, and they asked her to summarize the case and to talk about it. And I think that her summation is actually pretty spot on. She writes, So Jean Harris was in a seriously embattled position at work. She was addicted to prescription meth, and her boyfriend of a decade and a half was slow-mo dumping her for a Twinkie he had on the side. If she just outlined all that for the jury, the humiliation, the stress, the drugs, and followed it by saying very simply, Then I lost it and shot him, she'd have been a free woman in a couple of years. But that wasn't the strategy that they took in the case at all. Instead, they make some rather odd trial defense choices. And I want us to think about these choices and the, the risks and the rewards of each one. The first one was the accident defense, that this was a tragic accident. All right. Let us all put on our reasonable hats and ask ourselves, what the risk of the tragic accident defense might be. Anybody got something? Why is this a problem?
1: Four shots.
2: Okay, one more time.
1: Four shots.
2: Four shots. Why is four shots a problem for the tragic accident thing?
1: One looks like an accident,
2: four looks like intent. Yeah, my my finger slipped, pulled the squeeze the trigger one time. And then again, (laughs) and again, and again. That one's a little hard to say. It's a little like I accidentally stabbed you seven times, I fell once, and then the six times I just had a hard time getting up. Uh, accident defense, the risk is that it's hard to believe. The reward would have been she's pretty much, she's off the hook. Uh, she's not going to spend jail time. We'll talk about the different degrees of, of uh, murder and manslaughter that was optional, that, were, that could have been options. Uh, this is a weird component as well this trial lasts for 14 weeks it goes on and on imagine being one of the there were 12 jury members and four alternates so 16 excuse me 16 people who are stuck in this this trial situation um, forever and gene harris testified for eight days okay if you're the jury Think about what you might be looking for from Jean Harris if you want to acquit her or convict her. What are the What are the characteristics you're paying attention to? Yes.
3: Consistency.
2: Consistency. Tell me about a little bit about the consistency. What What kinds of things would you be looking for as a juror?
3: Uh, to see if her story uh, is staying the same, as pertaining to very minute details, basically, is what I would be looking for.
2: Okay. That's good. You're looking for consistency of the story. What else might you be looking for? If, you, if you're in a jury, you're in the jury and you've got a murderer, sorry, an alleged murderer in front of you, what are you looking for? Yes?
1: Does she look like she'd do it?
2: Yeah, the appearance, which may be part of the reason they keep talking about what her clothing is. I think part of the reason they're also talking about her clothing is she's perceived as a wealthy woman. Um, she's not particularly wealthy, but there's a wealthy tinge in this. And she wears nice clothes, so she looks privileged. Does it look like she could do it? All right, remember Lizzie Borden, the lady's defense? Ladies don't use axes to kill people. Ladies poison. This is the same kind of argument. Ladies don't shoot lovers. If they're heartbroken, they shoot themselves. Ladies commit suicide. Ladies don't commit murder. And you're looking, and the jury is probably looking to see if it's true. Does she look like she could do it? That's actually a pretty good good question that I suspect the jury asked themselves a lot. What they got was eight days of a little bit crazy. Uh, she was, it's about a year, the trial starts in November of 1980, and it runs for the 14 weeks, so it's, it's spring of um, 1981 when she testifies. Uh, and she... It's interesting, the reports are different. Different people had different reactions. She appears to have charmed some people. They found her witty, they found her urbane, they found her uh, very sophisticated, they found her to be a lady, on the other hand, she also had to deal with the fact that she'd written this letter. Let's call it the Scarsdale letter. And it was like this 10 pages, seven to 10 page handwritten letter to High that she had mailed, and then she got there and killed him, and so her lawyers picked it up at the, at the post office. And it's, it's seven to 10 pages of crazy. Uh, it's clear that she is way on edge. She talks about her stress with the job, she talks about how much she loves High, she talks about their life together, and she goes off on Lynn Triforest over and over, calls her high's whore, uh, calls her a slut, just totally attacks this other woman, lays out all the things that she thinks that Lynn has done to to wrong her. And she has to, and and, and during trial Jean Harris has to answer questions about this letter. And she doesn't do it particularly well. Now again, if the jury had believed her, great. But since they didn't, and she gets convicted, this looks like a mistake in retrospect. She had a bunch of psychiatrists who had talked to her, because one of the defenses that she might have used was something called extreme emotional defense. So it's the idea that she acted in that that passion of the moment, (laughs) the heat of the moment. Uh, And her lawyer chose not to put on any psychiatric defense. Uh, Sean Alexander, in her biography and a couple of other articles, said the time to have put on the psychiatrist would have been right after Jean Terrace testified, which would have said, look, she's a perfectly lovely woman who got pushed beyond what she could handle. Uh, but he didn't do it. Her lead attorney sat down and said it was over. And to this day, there are questions about why that was the choice of what he said. He said later that he didn't think it was necessary. He thought he'd, they'd won the physical evidence issue, that the, the, the bullets in the body proved that it was an accident. I, clearly, the jury didn't think so. I don't either, quite frankly. Uh, he thought that Gene Harris's presence was enough. Now, Jean's lawyer always admired James Harris. In fact, when he gave his first press press conference, he said, she is very much a lady. And that was his theme, that she was a lady, and ladies don't shoot their lovers. They shoot themselves. And it didn't work. The jury deliberated for eight days, which is a fair chunk of time. And during those eight days, they kept going back to the judge asking for clarifications of instructions. And they kept saying that we think this is a problem, Uh, we don't understand this, we'd like to know more about intent, we'd like to know more about this, and they took their job seriously, and then they unanimously convicted her of murder in the second degree. That was the worst possible outcome. We'll talk about why it couldn't be murder one in just a second. And the judge sentenced her to 15 years, which was the minimum required sentence, to life for her crimes. Now the judge himself hadn't forgotten that Lynn was a, the, sorry that uh, Jean was a lady because he said in the sentencing hearing that sentencing is quote never an easy job for any judge, particularly in this case because it is a woman. I guess he would have felt better if I I, I don't know if she'd been a man and shot the diet doctor um, that somehow that would have worked. But let's talk about these different <laughs> options. One of the mistakes during the trial was not giving the jury the option of manslaughter one. The way criminal trials work, as you know, is the prosecution is going to go for the top thing they can. They are going to ask for um, the highest level of offense. And then usually you have all the, what they call, lesser secondary included offenses within that, that level. So if murder one is the highest form of murder in New York, then you can ask for murder two, manslaughter one, manslaughter two, and criminally negligent homicide. So murder one isn't really on the table because the elements of murder one are that you have to have everything that is involved in murder two plus aggravating circumstances of the identity of the victim. Usually that identity of the victim needs to be law enforcement, a judge, some sort of special person (coughs) in society, diet doctors, cardiologists don't count, um... That the commission of the murder, that it happened during a felony, for example, or the nature of, a, of the killing was so egregious that it rose to the level of murder one. Murder one's not really an option and the prosecution didn't try for it at all. They went for murder two, which is the intent to cause death and you do in fact cause death. Gives you mandatory jail time. This is what she gets committed of, uh, convicted of. So. The prosecution was fine with all the lesser included offenses. The defense, Gene Harris's lawyer said to the judge, I don't want the jury to even consider manslaughter one. Take it off the table. This is a a roll the dice hoping to get double sevens. This is a tough. He's saying to the jury, you're either going to send my client to jail for a lot of time, 15 years to life, or we're not going to send her at all. It's as close to an acquittal as we can get if we get manslaughter one, a two or criminal criminal negligence, manslaughter two sometimes called involuntary manslaughter, is the reckless cause of someone's death. There is no mandatory jail time, although you can get up to 15 years. Criminally negligent homicide is, quote, failing to perceive a substantial or unjustifiable risk. So, a criminally justifiable homicide, criminally, sorry, criminally negligent homicide would be like if Gene Harris was sitting on the bed and was playing with a gun and it went off. That would fall more under uh, negligent, uh, excuse me, negligent homicide. Involuntary manslaughter, recklessly causing Tarnauer's death. But manslaughter, too, voluntary manslaughter, actually seems like a pretty good option in this case. This is causing death in the heat of passion, that you are under that extreme emotional disturbance, that you are super freaked out. Okay, so hearing what you've already heard, we're going to do a verdict here of show of your hands of yourself. First of all, raise your hand if you would have convicted for murder two. I'm seeing one, two hands, three hands. Okay, raise your hand if you would have convicted for manslaughter two. Involuntary manslaughter. Okay, I got four, five, six. All right, a little more manslaughter, too. Uh, Criminally negligent homicide. Anybody willing to convict on that? You can only vote for one. All right, raise your hand if you would have chosen manslaughter one. Manslaughter one wins, but it wasn't an option. It wasn't on the table. It was a huge gamble by her lawyer, and he lost. And when he loses, the stories just go on. The post-media trial is insane. So in 1981 and 82, there are two different biographies that come out. Very much A Lady by Shauna Alexander that I've talked about. Uh, Diana Trilling's Mrs. Harris. I started that one. It was slower read, so I'm sorry. I didn't finish it. Uh, The made-for-TV movie came out within weeks of The Verdict. Uh, they took the trial transcripts, and they wrote it as the trial was going along, and then they started filming before the, the trial even ended. And then in 2005, there was a remake of the, the made-for-TV movie with uh, Annette Bening and Ben Kingsley, which is now available. Jean Harris herself wrote some books. She wrote one in prison called Stranger in Two Worlds about her life in prison and her life before, and she talks about the trial. Uh, she had filed a lawsuit about that trial, that, sorry, about that book. Because in the 1980s, people who were in prison for crimes couldn't profit off their crimes via a book. Anything you got for writing your book had to go into a fund for the victims who filed lawsuits against you. It was called the Son of Sam um, law. Somebody in here wrote about the Son of Sam in one of their papers. And he was a, a serial killer and he tried to write a book and New York didn't want him to make any profit off it. So Jean Harris's proceeds from this were going into a into a trust for the victim's family. Victim's family said, we don't want the money. Jean Harris said, I don't want the money either. I actually wanted to go to this program I'm working on. While Jean Harris was in prison, she started working with pregnant women in prison to help them become better mothers. And she had convinced her prison to start basically this child center so that if, your mother gave birth to you while she was in jail, you could live in this center for the first year of your life and she could come see you every day. And the idea was it was supposed to promote mother-daughter bonding. And she wanted the money to help support that. Uh, she lost her lawsuit, uh, but eventually the, um, the law went all the way to the US Supreme Court. And in 1991, the Supreme Court ruled that the Son of Sam law was overbroad. And all of her proceeds that were still sitting in this trust went to her, her, her uh, center for kids. She later wrote another book uh, about her life in prison and she called it They Always Called Us Ladies, Stories from Prison. Uh, And so everybody profits off of this, but Jean Harris sits in jail for a long time. She's not thrilled with being in jail. So what do you do when you're not happy with being in jail? You appeal. And that is what she did. So uh, first appeal comes right away. She asks to have the, the verdict dismissed and that was denied um they rejected the claim her claim that the pre-trial publicity had made it impossible for her to get a fair trial uh in part because she and her lawyers never asked for a change of venue uh they said that the prosecutor was not unfair in cross-examining her um basically her law, appeal lawyer said well they were mean to her she's like no that doesn't count." um Harris said that the prosecutor was particularly mean because he called her a liar uh, when Harris herself had denounced all the many other witnesses as liars, and they said basically any har- errors that occurred during the trial were harmless. Then in 1982, she got uh, upheld, but she had argued that the court should have used uh, the different standard. That didn't work. But in 1992, she tries again at the federal level, and she says that the court was that her trial was incompetent. Uh, sorry, her lawyer at her trial was incompetent. That he should have overruled her and used the uh, manslaughter one. That he should have told her not to testify. Uh, the court said that it was a tactical decision. And it was no violation of her Sixth Amendment right of counsel. So, Jane Harris is in jail. She, tries, she actually does some good work. Uh, there were interviews when she died with women in the prison that she had worked with. And they all had very nice things to say. Um... While she was in prison, her sons are still out there and they're trying the whole appeal thing and that's not working at all. So now they're trying an emotional appeal. For years, they asked the different men who were the New York state governors for clemency, which basically means to end her sentence and send her home. And in 1993, it it finally works. Mario Cuomo is president, father of the guy who's, sorry, Mario Cuomo is governor, father of the guy who's currently governor, and he releases her three years prior to the end of her sentence. She goes away, uh, and the world pays attention. These are clips from different newspapers, uh, and the tabloids go crazy again, and she uses her notoriety to raise more money for that center for kids and now she starts a scholarship fund for kids whose parents go to prison so she does some really good things and she lives a pretty quiet quiet happy life uh, after she gets released and she dies in 2012 so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the trials of lizzie borden and gene harris and how they're (coughs) similar and how they're different okay you've had you know about an hour to think about this What are some of the similarities that you see? Yeah. The defense used uh, appearance of ladylike tendencies in both cases. Yep. Ladies don't kill this way. What else? What other similarities are there? That's the really big one. But there are some differences. Um, Well, I guess, let me take this back. There are a couple other similarities. One is, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, they both, they both came from families that were pretty well off, but like not too like rich.
2: Yeah, they come from wealth. That gives them a little more defense attorney power. Although Lizzie Borden's defense attorney was way better, not just because she got acquitted, but also because they she invested. There was somehow more money invested in Lizzie Borden. Remember, she has the three attorneys, one of whom will later become governor, and one's an attorney general. Um, she's got all that going for her. Uh, yeah. And both of them were on drugs. Uh, theoretically, we don't know for sure Lizzie Borden was. Unfortunately, we do know that uh, Jean Harris wasn't at the time of the murder. Maybe if she'd stayed on her methamphetamine well, yeah, she might have like been more drugs
3: level. Kind of have like a, a drugs play
2: a role yeah. in all this. Both of these women are different than other women of their era. They're not married. Um, Jean Harris is divorced, and she has a long-term relationship with another man. Today, we—that's that, not that big a deal. In 1980, it was a big deal, especially for a white woman of privilege to not be married. Lizzie Borden remains single and lives in that weird setup in the house with her with her parents. That's just weird and creepy. In both cases, we've also got the the weirdness of sex. Uh, we got the, the Jean Gene Harris has an a, has a, a paramour, and nobody knows what to do. What? Why isn't Lizzie Borden married? That just feels weird for the era. So we've got that leaking in. Uh, all of their social status has a kind of similarity, but the trials themselves are different. The, even though both of them, both attorneys, use the, the uh, "she's a lady" defense. What's the biggest difference between the two trials? Yep. The verdict. The verdict. That's a really big one. Lizzie <laughs> Borden walks away, uh, and Jean Harris doesn't. Jean Harris. Oh, there is actually one other thing they have in common that's totally trivial, but I find it hysterical. They both loved dogs. Remember what Lizzie Borden does with all that money she inherits? She sets up the, the animal sanctuary when she dies. Uh, Jean Harris always has a dog. Uh, like I, you'll notice if you go back through these photos, I have a whole bunch of photos with her with dogs because she loved dogs. She always has dogs. She feels very strongly about them. Uh, now, this is both a similarity and a difference. The jury instructions, wonky in both cases. Jean Harris, they leave off manslaughter too. What was the weirdness in Lizzie Borden? Anybody remember? The judge- oh push them to say not guilty yeah because of the emphasis on the circumstantial evidence the judge guided the lizzie borden trial to the outcome and that doesn't happen for jane harris her own lawyer makes i would argue a stupid decision and takes her best option off the table so we've got that element of similarity and differences um Jean Harris doesn't get kind of the same home court advantage with a prominent defense team. Lizzie Borden's trial is be- is her defense team is better, not the least of which because she wins. But they both kind of are hauntingly similar in weird ways because they're wealthy women of means who th- everybody thinks has committed a crime. One of whom gets away with it. The other of whom doesn't. One of whom we remember. The other of whom we don't. Which leads me to my last slide our, uh, the last part of this conversation. What makes a trial, the, crime of the, the trial of the century, what makes a crime memorable? Why do, we, why do we think, why do you guys know who Lizzie Borden is?
3: Yep. Because of the rhyme.
2: The rhyme, that helps. Lizzie Borden took an ax, gave her father 40 whacks. <laughs> There's no good Gene Harris rhyme. So note to yourself, if you ever want to get some criminal famous, think of some cool little nursery rhyme that we can have forever. That helps a lot. Especially if you can put it to a song. Now you've got a catchy, catchy jingle and you're good. What else? What other, there's, a, there's a really big difference between Lizzie Borden's murder, alleged murder, and Gene Harris's murder. What's the mechanism? How did Lizzie Borden's parents die? Mm-hmm. An axe. <clears throat> it's gory. It's bloody. There's a lot of, it, it's a freaking axe. This is a big deal. Gunshots, yeah, it's tragic. Somebody dies. But we have a lot of gun violence in this country. We don't have as many axe murders. Does that play a role in what we remember? The more gory the murder, does that help? If you're looking for a good gory crime? yep, yeah, Austin? It doesn't hurt. It does not hurt at all. Let's say uh, another
3: thing would probably be the impact that the ruling has on society as a whole. So, Lizzie Borden was the first time where they were shifting away from using stereotypes to convict, uh, whereas uh, this trial, there weren't as many um, stereotypes involved because, there, well, she had already admitted to killing him. Um, so, just the implications that the ruling had, it seemed, on society was a lot more significant in Lizzie
0: Borden's case.
2: Yeah, Lizzie Borden gets acquitted because of those stereotypes, they work in her favor. Jane Harris, the stereotypes are present, but they're not helping her. The jury doesn't acquit her because of those. In fact, if anything, she's looked a little more askance, um, that she didn't use her privilege in the right way.
1: Yeah? I think there's also the role of mystery and allure, because with the Lizzie Borden case, like to this day, people are still arguing whether or not she did it, looking at every little piece of evidence with the OJ trial as well. like Could he? Could he maybe not have? And this one, you know for sure that she was holding a gun and it went off. We just don't know if she had intent or not, but it kind of pulls away some of that mystery of
2: the case. That's an outstanding point. I think the mystery matters. We can fight, we can argue, we can debate, did Lizzie Borden do it or not? There's no debate over Jean Harris. She pulled the trigger. We don't know the motive, but that's not the same kind of fun argument. Did she mean to do it? Didn't she mean to do it? It's not nearly as much fun as trying to think about whether or not she did it at all. And so I think that adds to the kind of cultural lure. You made the reference to O.J. Simpson, the did he do it, did he not do it? Because there are questions still. And we might all have our own passionate opinion, but it's not fact. The fact is Gene Harris pulled the trigger. And that might change in the cultural memory at the time to- as well. At the time, it was exciting and it was dramatic. It had all these, these narrative elements but we kind of knew the ending. She pulled the trigger, high died. We didn't know the why. But that's not as exciting a question. Um, there, if you think about all the murder mysteries ever written, not a whole lot of them tell you up front who did it and then figure out the motive. There's at least one TV series that does and a couple of books, but most of them, the mystery is who done it. They're called whodunits for a reason. It also helps to bring it back over and over as a movie. When Remember when we did Lizzie Borden and we saw like the four or five different movies about Lizzie Borden? There are a whopping two about Gene Harris. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the Gene Harris movies. Yeah, well now you have something to do this weekend. Uh, Lizzie Borden's movies are more constant. Every few years a Lizzie Borden movie comes out. So I think that between axe murderer, not knowing for sure who does it, those kinds of things, the whodunit element helps make, keep a, a mystery, more of a mystery, and it keeps it alive in American society. All right. Thank you all. Have a lovely afternoon and a good weekend. I will see you Tuesday.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out season two of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.